This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Harville Hendricks. Harville Hendricks is a therapist and educator with over three decades of experience working with couples and singles seeking intimate partners. A former professor at both Perkins School of Theology and Southern Methodist University, he holds a PhD in psychology and religion from the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. His very popular books include Getting the Love You Want, Keeping the Love You Find, and Receiving Love. With Sounds True, he's published a six-CD audio learning program called Finding and Keeping Love, an Imago-based approach. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Harville and I spoke about a biological explanation for the notion that opposites attract, how it is that we choose partners that reflect the negative traits of our childhood caregivers, what it might mean to recognize otherness in relationship, and the value and great benefit of creating a relationship that is without judgment, what Harville calls living with zero negativity. Here's my inspiring conversation with Harville Hendricks. Harville, you've been working with couples for more than three decades now. And to begin with, here's what I'm curious about. What do you think, when you really boil it down, is the cause of the great distress that it seems like most of us have in our intimate life? If you could just boil it down to what it really comes down to after working with so many different people, what's the pattern that you see? Well, the um, the fundamental uh, thing that uh, causes uh, conflict and therefore stress is the problem of acknowledging difference. Uh, it's a really very simple thing that couples have a real challenge to recognize that they actually live with another person. And this other person is um, a person who has their own subjectivity, their own values, their own particular peculiarities that belong to them as to who they are. And, and the reason that make is a problem is because the, the person they discover, they married and live with doesn't uh, fit the, uh, the, the, the pre, uh, I guess to put it another way, doesn't fit in the picture that they had of the person that they thought they married. So it's fundamentally uh, the difficulty in uh, acknowledging, owning, and accepting difference. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that being a problem, but but that's fundamentally, if you boil it right down, difference is difficult. Or to put it another way, otherness sucks. Okay, that's very very clear. But let's talk more about that. I, I want my partner to deal with money the same way I deal with money. I want my partner to want to go on the same number of vacations I want to go on, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this seems like this is pretty pretty common for people. And well, my, my question is, of course, it would be more 
convenient if if our partner was just just like us, but but they're not. So this seems logical. It's not hard to understand this, and yet we we try to turn our partner into this thing that fits the way we want. So what's what's going on, Harville? Well, I think uh, there are two things going on, and one uh, and the first one is amplified by the second one. Uh, I think the first one is that there is a common human problem that has to do with the growth of the mind in infancy and childhood, uh, in which we uh, we assume that uh, our inner world is uh, the world, and that what and there's also a simple sort of epistemology that what you see is what is there, and that and it's sort of a, a a problem that shows up in in the sciences as well. Uh, it has to do with the simplicity of perception. That if I see a tree, you see the tree. He sees the tree. Everybody sees the tree. Isn't it a green tree? Um, and somebody says, "Well, you could call it green, but it's uh, sort of brown too." Uh, oh no, no, no! It's green. Uh, it's green. Uh, or one of the things, one things Helen and I get involved in all the time is. What is the meaning of the word cold? Um, for Helen, cold is anything under 80 degrees. Uh, for me, uh, anything uh, cold uh, doesn't start until about 72 degrees. So, so that, all that has to do with the different sensors in our skin about what is cold. So, so when we walk into a room, Helen will say, it's cold in here. Like we go to hotels a lot, and you know they have all these air conditioners on hotels, or to other events. And I'll say, "Oh, this is this is so comfortable," and she says it's cold. And so all of that has to do with the common fact that our receptors, uh, our brains, our skin, and our eyes are all unique and distinctive. Although you know there's a range in which there's a great deal of similarity, like um, like a tree. Uh, when you look at a tree, I'm looking at one out of my window now, and there's probably, you know, 500,000 leaves on that tree. And from this distance, they all look the same. Tremendous similarity, uh, but but no sameness. Now, so that's the reality. So what, in, in relationships, where I've worked for the past um, three decades or so, as you said, there's an amplification of that, of that, Sort of distortion between perception and um, and 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 reality, and that's caused by a disturbance that occurs in childhood. And the disturbance that occurs in childhood is the uh, the caretaker's failure to accurately mirror and hold the uh, child's experience of the child self. Like, for instance, just to quickly. If a child got scared by a big dog, um, many parents would say, oh, no, don't be afraid. This dog is not scary. Well, the child, the dog, was very scary. And it's a very simple but requires uh, some awareness to say, oh, well, that dog is really scary for you. Gee whiz, what a big dog. And that and it really scared you. Um, and so now the child says, well, my fear of the dog uh, is recognized by my mother or father or whoever was doing this, whereas the first parent, the child says, gosh, I'm scared of a dog, and my caretakers uh, uh, don't say I shouldn't be scared, so what do I do with my experience? 
So that simple thing alone of the distinction, or, or, or the uh, not the distinction, but the discrepancy between the child's experience of itself and the caretaker's response to that experience produces an emotional injury. The child then has to begin uh, splitting off its own experience uh, of being scared from the experience that it ought not to be scared according to the parents. So when that happens, something very tragic occurs. The pain of that, uh, of that experience of having to split and also of having to, in some sense, split from the caretaker uh, is, a, is an emotional pain. And this is happening. This is happening in a brain that is totally absorbing its environment, can't reflect on it, can't think about it, has no words, first four years of life. So mainly what's in the brain is an emotional memory of a fear I had, which I was told was not real. But it's an emotional memory. There are no words, not even an event memory, just, just, a, just a concern about, say, dogs. And dogs, therefore, become a certain way. So now I've gone inside myself. And since the, since the uh, tendency of human beings is to even under the best of conditions, assume that what they see is what is there, and what they hear is, is the sound that's being sung. This now becomes amplified because when you become emotionally self-absorbed because of a pain, you don't let in data from the outside uh, very much because the inside world is, in fact, the world that becomes your world. And so data coming in saying, oh, that's not really your world, adds to the anxiety. So more and more, all of us grow up into a feeling that our world is the world, now amplified by the fact that if we let that go, we make ourselves subject to something perhaps even catastrophic. I mean, what do I do when I discover that the world that I'm looking at is not the world that other people are seeing? So, <clears throat> so that's what amplifies that. So then when you get married, you have this view of men are or women are, or sex is, or money is, and it's your narrative about all that that you've developed in childhood, and there's still this assumption that my narrative is the narrative. It's a capital N, not a little N, and then I run my narrative uh, for my partner, and my partner says, well, that's not the way I see it. I think money should be spent. We shouldn't save very much because we're blah, 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 and people who save money too much don't have fun enjoying it. So my narrative is if you don't, the money is not to be spent, it's to be saved. If we don't save it, catastrophes could come along and, you know, how the two narratives could go. So now you have a conflict. So these two narratives, both of most narrators assume that they are in the zone of truth. And uh, neither one knows that they're in the zone of the way it appears to them. And that, therefore, there's an enormous amount of flexibility in money, uh, itself, that money is not the issue, it's the relationship to money, and that relationship uh, is built into a narrative that comes all the way back in childhood and amplified by the tendency to see things uh, as real from our perspective now, in amplified by the anxiety and pain of childhood, which made us more self-absorbed and shut down uh, outsources of outside information so that we become more rigid uh, with that anxiety about the um, facticity of our inner world. That's a long uh, story, but uh, that's what I finally figured out is what 
makes it so difficult to live with another person. Now, there's a, a lot there and a couple of things I want to tease out. Now, the, the first is, it seems that often people don't have as much trouble with the otherness of, you know, XYZ person as they do the otherness of their partner. Like other people do this, that, that's fine. But when it comes to my love, I, you know, this is what I expect. Right. And that's, um, uh, that has to do with the, with the meaning of um, the partner in the unconscious. That the partner, our partner, our love partner, our romantic partner, our married partner, the one we're committed to, um, is that person that we selected because we fell in love with them uh, because they are in our minds similar to the caretakers that we grew up with in childhood. So <clears throat> this um, this meaning that these uh, that these people have makes our uh, relationship with them more significant than it does with other people. It's more emotionally charged, and it's um, therefore we're more emotionally sensitive and. Uh, there's also a uh, an unconscious uh, projection onto this person that we've fallen in love with that this person uh, is a carrier of resources that can satisfy our needs, but in order for us to get those resources, we somehow uh, uh, we somehow have they somehow have to fit into my picture of things. So if you don't fit into the picture, if you're not the generous, kind, warm, loving, caring person that I thought I fell in love with and married, then that uh, raises anxiety that the needs I had from my earlier caretakers, which now I have in my unconscious mind assigned to you, won't get met. And what that and, and that's not trivial. And and for a long time I wondered why, why is that so important? So you didn't get hugs in childhood, and you're not getting hugs from your partner, and you're making a big deal out of it. I mean, a hug is a hug. Go get one from somewhere else. Um, but that's, I finally figured out, that's not the point. The hug I want is the hug I didn't get from my caretakers in childhood. And I have to have that hug from somebody similar to my caretakers in childhood. And unconsciously, I selected a person, fell in love with them, who is similar to the caretakers I had in childhood, who did not hug me. But I want the hug from the person who's similar to the person who didn't hug me. So it's not that I just want to hug uh, and go get it from George. It's that I want to hug from Peter, who is not a hugger. Uh, because if I don't get it from, it goes in the unconscious mind, that's really important. And it's important, as I said earlier, because for the first four years of life, the, the brain is purely a sponge. It absorbs everything, and there's no way that one can say about, the, so, so all of those are emotional not event experiences or verbal experiences or symbolic experiences, purely emotional, purely felt, purely timeless, uh, and so consequently, purely powerful. Because what's happening now is what has always happened for me, or that, that whatever triggers me in the present uh, triggers an experience that is really connected to the past, but that's not in my awareness. What's in my awareness is that you're not hugging me. Now, this cornerstone of your work, this idea that our chosen love partner somehow is representing these qualities, these characteristics of 
one or both of our primary caretakers in, from the first four years of life. I, I'm sure people in your workshops and that you've worked with said, you know, Harville, I'm the exception to this. It's just not like that. I can't find my mom and my dad and my partner. I just don't, I don't see it. Have you ever really encountered that, or is it always that the person hasn't looked hard enough or seen it somehow yet? Well, it, it, it's an interesting um, experience that, in most cases, one partner gets it completely and says, yep, I see it all. I uh, hadn't seen it before, but now that you've said it, yeah, I can see how uh, George is like my withholding father. And George would say, don't get it at all. She's nothing at all like my mother. Um, so what happens is that uh, you have to sit with it because George has now decided uh, already uh, what, uh, what that image is. And he also is not connecting it to something usually subtle. But if you, but, so I've heard it, the answer is yes, I've heard it a lot. I hear it in every workshop. And the process is always the same is that we have to ask this question, George, what frustration shows up over and over again with Mary? And when it shows up, you're emotional about it, really emotional about it. And it just seems to always show up. And George will say, oh, well, you know, uh, she, um, she kind of is never gets ready and, uh, when we're trying to go somewhere. She's always in the house doing something. And I'm sitting in the car waiting for 15 minutes. So I said, okay, so this happens over and over again whenever that goes on. It, it's, you just get really upset about that, emotionally upset about that. And, and what do you feel? She said, well, I, I feel like she just, uh, I, I, and, and of course she, he'll say, I feel like she's just insensitive and slow and lazy and all that. So no, 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 no. That's a description of her. What do you feel sitting in the car? What, what is your narrative? And he says, oh, my narrative is um, that, you know, she just, in, in, you know, she just doesn't care. She's, um, she just doesn't get it that I'm out here. Uh, and so what does that remind you of? And inevitably, a person will say, oh, oh, well, gosh, I never saw that. Um, that reminds me of not being able to get my mother's attention, no matter what. Uh, she was always busy doing something else. So does that make sense then? And then he would say, oh, yes. Now I see the whole pattern. So it has to do with, for one, there's more denial and defense against that uh, in most relationships, and for the other, there's, uh, there's more awareness. But it's always the case that if you fall in love, it's always the case, I've, I tested this over the years, it's always the case that if you fall in love, you will inevitably bring home with you someone with the negative traits of your caretakers. And you'll ask them to give you stuff that your caretakers didn't give you. And because they're similar to the caretakers, they won't be able to do it just like your caretakers were not able to do it. And so for that, then, is the thing that fuels the struggle that we call the power struggle. Now, that's a very strong statement. It's always the case. And, and just to take it a little further, what about couples who meet each other very late in life? They've already done a lot of their personal work. They've, they've uh -huh. worked through a lot of this material. Do you still think that's the case? They're still looking to heal these childhood wounds? Well, I think the, the, uh, the if is, did they do what you just said, work through stuff? If they did, 
work through stuff, and they have uh, learned how to uh, relate to another person to get some needs met, have gotten those needs met at some level, then they will, well, what we know about those is that they will actually uh, engage in a healing process that, that um, moves them up the emotional ladder. They, they become more mature. Their wounds are more healed. And at that point, uh, let's say you had a, a, a wound in the first year of life, and the wound was around attachment. And so that attachment wound would interfere with the, with the potential in the second year of life, which is about exploration uh, and so forth. So, um, but that wound was never dealt with. Or the, the third year of life, you're, the, the, the potential wounding is around a sense of self. We call it identity. Um, so uh, if you worked on attachment and got attachment and exploration done, and usually if you have attachment, you have an exploration wound and an identity wound, and you have evolved and become more mature, I guess the bottom line is this without all those details, then you will always be attracted to somebody at your level of emotional maturity. So the answer is yes, later and later in life, um, you will select people who have more, who have, whose emotional maturity will match yours. Uh, if you have done the work, you can do that. If you haven't done the work, you can be 70 years old and fall in love like a teenager and go through the same thing because keep in mind that the part of the brain where all this drama happens is in the limbic system. And and around the, uh, in the limbic area, there's a thing called the amygdala. And that amygdala is a, is a, is a both a reactive system to danger but there's also a memory system built into it, the neuroscientists say. And, but the memory in the amygdala is not a cognitive memory. Those memories, cognitive and event memories, are held in the hippocampus, which is sort of like a library, which is also in the, in the limbic system, the emotional center of the brain. But the memories around the amygdala are purely emotional, random, scattered, immortal, eternal. They are not connected to space or time. They're just there. You touch them. And you're now, you're now, you know, one year old again. So, um, so that's that's the really important thing is that that if you work and begin to um, uh, heal a bunch of uh, needs, um, then the, the hippocampus then has event memories of needs being met. You become more emo- more emotionally mature, more emotionally stable, and um, and therefore will begin to respond to the world and to other people in a different way because your need system will change. I'm curious, Harville, with all of the interesting research that's now being done with neuroscience and meditative states and all of the new things we're learning about the brain, if any of those discoveries have impacted your work on relationships in any new way, any new insights that you've had as a result of what we're learning these days from neuroscience? Well, the answer to that is a resounding yes. Uh, and the yes is, uh, and this is sort of um, uh, sort of amazing to me, and it's amazing to um, my students uh, in, in, in Imago. We have about 2,000 Imago therapists around the world now. And what we're all doing is we're reading the brain research and we're saying, oh, my God, uh, the brain research confirms what we intuited or discovered at the psychological level. Uh, you know, because this this book was put together in the 
in the early 80s, uh, Getting the Love You Want was put together in the early 80s, before any brain research of any import was done. That began in the 90s. Uh, that was the decade of the brain when we learned about um, neuroplasticity, uh, namely that the brain could um, uh, could change and did change uh, all, all, all of our lives. And then in the, uh, in the last decade, from 2000 until now, we've become more specific about what's going on in the brain as a result of new uh, measurement devices like uh, fMRIs and MRIs and, uh, and better use of GSMs and so forth, that there's all kinds of increased capacity to measure, not only take pictures of the brain, but actually take a movie of the brain uh, functions uh, as locating where particular things occurred. So what we're discovering now is um, the neurophysiological basis and correlates of what we had discovered earlier and posited as subjective experiences. For instance, there's a dynamic in every couple uh, uh, called, we call them the, the minimizer-maximizer uh, or the, uh, the turtle and the hailstorm uh, in order to make it a little more interesting. Mm -hmm. And what that, what that is is one person in a relationship is always more energetic and takes more initiative and talks more and is more sensitive and usually so forth than the other person. The other person is a responder, talks less, doesn't initiate much, tends to respond, and so forth. And so that's a turtle. The other one is the hailstorm or maximizer, minimizer, maximizer. So uh, we've known that dynamic was there since actually uh, the early 80s, before even the book was written, that there was this uh, universal pattern, and I called it complementarity, uh, that if you fall in love and you are a person with a, a high energy expression, you will inevitably be attracted to somebody whose energy expression is lower than yours. And uh, it was also the case that if you divorced and remarried, you might marry somebody in which there was a reversal of that. Um, and so, but which meant that we both do both, but in a relationship, we tend to balance that out with one of us doing more of one than the other. That is, one becomes more the initiator, the other becomes more the responder. So one of the uh, simple things that has emerged is we now know about the parasympathetic nervous system, which are the two branches of the central nervous system, and the sympathetic system is the one that regulates arousal, and the parasympathetic one is the one that regulates uh, uh, quietness or the down. The uh, 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 it, it, it's not. I don't know what's the other side of arousal. It's um, relaxation. Uh, relaxation, and that what now what now we can posit happens is why would somebody have a uh, um, who had both aspects of the central nervous system present always or most of the time uh, be one who responded to stuff with a lot of energy. Um, and what we've learned now is that that's because in childhood arousal got parental attention and therefore it became a dominant, uh, a dominant behavior. Or in the other person, why would they always kind of hold back and go inside and not, you know, not make much of a fuss? unless you push them too hard. And that's because if you're relaxed and quiet, parents paid attention. So, the, so you then began to um, um, over, un, underbalance, that is, you lost your balance. 
So if you were became a turtle, kept your energy in, minimizing, you'll marry somebody who's a hailstorm maximizer, expresses energy in order to have that oscillation of central nervous system so that you're dealing with that. You're dealing with both sides of that, but, uh, but in two people. And, and what is so interesting, too, is that, that when you, you're attracted, let's say the turtle is attracted to the hailstorm because she or he has got so much energy and you're low energy, you're attracted to it. And then when you finally make a commitment, uh, you don't like it. Um, and you get scared when they do that. And what we figured out was, well, in childhood, if I was expressive, I got punished. So I went to quiet where I didn't get punished and got my needs met. So while I'm attracted to your energy, it's also dangerous because when you're expressive, you could something bad could happen. So you have to stop being the way you are and be more like me because what I did kept me safe and what you're doing makes it dangerous for both of us. So it's an interesting sort of thing. But the long, the, the short answer to that is that we have uh, we now think we know where what we call the imago is located. Tell me where. Tell uh, me where. Where is the imago located? One of the um, uh, one of the um, brain scientists that I've gotten familiar with, who has been really attracted to imago, says it's in the uh, it's in the front part of the um, of the uh, cortex uh, in the orbit or orbitofrontal lobe, um, in the and he thinks it's probably a little uh, a little more into the um, uh, that part of that lobe that's in the in the right brain because there's so much emotion attached to it. So it's a it's a memory area in the brain where emotional memories seem to cluster. Okay, now Harville, you, you mentioned neuroplasticity, that yeah. our, our brains can actually change over time. And of course, as I'm listening to you, I'm uh, in touch with all of the different ways that the neural pathways in me have formed, I, I believe, and uh, my interest in changing them through loving, intimate relationships so that I can grow and mature. And my question here is, what do you see as the primary engine of growth and healing in relationships so that these neural pathways evolve and change? That's what we want. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> there's a, there's a, pre-statement that I have to make, which is that what we're finding is that, um, of course, nearly any input uh, that's repetitive um, changes the brain, and, and novel input changes the brain because the brain has to do that, unless there's so much anxiety that the brain allows uh, hardly any uh, input. So what that leads to is that the greatest brain growth seems to be a consequence of being in a, in a different context, in a context of safety. That if you're emotionally safe, then you can, in fact, allow new information to be received into, you know, into, your, uh, into your library. Uh, you can say, oh, so that's new. Um, or I can say to my partner, uh, so that's what's really going on in your mind. That's how you really feel, um, and that's really different from what I thought, and I get that, and hey, uh, I can accept that, and I'm going, to, I'm going to tuck that away 
in my hippocampus as an event experience with you, which uh, discredits the other books in my library, which said that you were your X, Y, and Z. Actually, you're A, B, C, and D. Um, so I get that straight. Now, I can do that if I'm safe. But if my partner is, uh, is uh, behaving in such a way that I'm scared, then I can't let in the new data. So no brain changes can occur. Um, what I'll do is reinforce what's already in the library and say, I got you fixed, I got you pegged, you're, you're at row seven, uh, uh, shelf four. <laughs> that's, that's where you're housed in my library, and I'm not move, and I can't move it, I can't move it around. Because the data you're telling me um, that you are really not that, you're telling me in such a way that you're confirming that you are what I think. To unpack it a little bit more, what creates that kind of safety for people? Well, uh, here's what we found works best. Um, and it works uh, not only best, but it works every time. Um, and that is uh, what we're now calling the zero negativity effect. And what we mean by zero negativity is basically that, that uh, a relationship, two people in a relationship, whether it's you know, intimate partnership or any other relationship, like one you have at work, there it sounds true. If you agree uh, to go to uh, eliminating um, judgment from your transactions with your friend or your partner, uh, judgment meaning a judgment that would say to your partner, you are really not okay. Uh, what you said is not okay. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a, there's an element of a put down to it that you are slightly inferior if you have that thought or feeling. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, I can't imagine where that thought would come from. Um, other people have said that, but they were wrong. Um, whatever you would say to another person that uh, essentially says you are inferior, wrong, a one down, uh, creates danger. And what we have now learned from the brain is, that from the brain research, is that the amygdala uh, is very sensitive to the put-down. And that, that uh, the people who do this, from a cultural anthropological perspective, say that for millions of years, human beings have been sensitive to the put-down. And you can so, sort of uh, see it, it uh, in animals, when an animal feels put down in order not to get themselves killed, they will then actually take the one down position, which then, uh, the, you know, the, the alpha male will say, okay, you're, you're okay, you're not going to die now, I'm not going to eat you or hurt you. But that the, the sensitivity to the put down uh, has been around for a long time and has been related to all kinds of authority structures. So, so a partner can put another partner down simply with the roll of the eye or with a harsh look or with a sound of their voice, or they can say something. And that creates danger. Danger activates the amygdala. The amygdala says, close the gates to the fort. We've got an incoming arrow uh, or a whole horde, and uh, troops tighten around and become your best defensive self. And when that happens, what's strengthened in the brain then is the perceptions that are rooted in the past. So if you don't have safety, you're not going to open the doors to the castle. And, uh, and therefore let some new stuff in 
which might in fact be some great new furniture that can make your castle even better. Uh, but you're not going to let it in if you think that it's a Trojan horse. Okay, now, now, now zero negativity. How about like how about like only twenty percent negativity or something? I mean, zero negativity. That seems, uh, I have to say, almost well implausible at least. Maybe not impossible, but implausible. Well, if it's twenty percent, then you're not safe because I never know when you might decide to shoot an arrow. So I'm going to live in an anticipation uh, that uh, you could at any time hurt me. But if we have an intention of zero negativity, uh, it is in fact possible. Uh, to zero it to zero it out. It doesn't mean that you can't uh, decide that your executive director's uh, uh, job description needs to be changed, or he needs to change his behavior to match a job description because there's some, you know, inconsistency between job performance and job need. Doesn't mean you can't make uh, certain kinds of evaluations. But even in the evaluation, you don't do the put down. Uh, because the put-down is going to mean then that I have to do something to put you down, because one down means I could be dead. So I'm going to go back up. So we do push it, is that, and John Gottman and I are discussing this now, and he says, no, I don't think you have to go to that level. That couples just can't do that. Uh, but what I'm finding is that until couples do that, there's a certain quality of the relationship uh, that doesn't happen. And that quality is a sort of plateau effect of joy. That if you if you if you can't have a reliable uh, know that your partner is reliably available, uh, or put it another way, if you anticipate that your partner can't be reliable around negativity, i.e., you zero it out, then you're going to have your uh, you know you're going to have your uh, your your gun in your holster, and it's going to be unsnapped. Okay, so what happens when I have the the patterned judgmental thought? It comes up. Do you know what I mean? Whatever it might be. But I made this commitment to zero negativity. What do I do? Well, we've, uh, we've found that there are two or three things you can do. And one thing that makes you safe is that you can say, Hey, Mary, um, I'm... I'm, uh, I'm, my intention is to be uh, not is to, is to not be negative. I want to tell you I'm really having a hard time, and I just want to share it with you. I want you to mirror it back, and then know I'm going to let it go. So that's that's sort of you know bottom line. Not a great thing, but a bottom line thing. If you want to make up the ante uh, for safety, what you do is when the when the judgmental thought comes up, it is always about this other person not fitting your picture. They're doing something which is comes out of their otherness and not and it's different from your picture of who they are or what they should be doing. Their their otherness which I find wrong. Their wrong otherness. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's 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 a, and and in fact negativity means otherness is not otherness is not going to show up here. I'm going to get you to fit my picture even if I have to beat you up. Uh, I coerced you when we were in romantic love to fit into my picture, and you agreed, and now you're slipping out of the picture. I'm going to beat you up to get you back in. So what you have to do is say, and, and this is a mental training thing that's, that, that requires some effort, like, sort of like meditation requires some effort. You have to get it that any time you're frustrated with another person, it's you, not the other person. And it's a distinct discrepancy between your view and what reality is. So what you do is go to curiosity. 
and say, so uh, I'm experiencing you chewing gum right now and standing on one hand. Uh, tell me what's, what's happening for you, what's going on for you. In other words, you move to curiosity, and then they say, well, um, what's going on for me is I'm chewing gum and standing on one hand. doesn't have any meaning. I was just feeling bored. Then you don't say to them, well, that's stupid, uh, because now you've gone to judgment. Uh, what you do go to then is, uh, is acceptance and validation uh, and empathy. Gosh, that makes sense. If you were bored, that you'd want to do something that was stimulating, and I can imagine you're feeling better. Um, and those are, those are we, we call that an intentional or dialogical conversation, that it always is the case that when you're frustrated, go to curiosity and empathy, those two things, curiosity and empathy, um, and, uh, and acceptance, curiosity, empathy, and acceptance. And you train yourself to do that instead of, what in the hell are they doing? Why would they be doing that? They must be a Republican. Um, and, uh, and here's the reason why to do this. Somebody, somebody asked me the other day, well, why, why should I do this? And so I said, well, aside from the obvious, is that your partner will feel safe with you and like you uh, a lot better, and you might have better sex, and you know, a whole range of things that comes with uh, safety, because uh, with safety comes connection and intimacy. Um, aside from all of that, whatever judgments go through your mind um, are received by your limbic brain that is just below the cortex and, and by the limbic brain, which has no direct connection with the outside world. It receives information from the outside world fundamentally through the, through the cortical. There's one little thing about danger that it receives directly. That is, if you don't move, your, if, you, if you move, you're going to be bitten by a rattlesnake. So you just don't have time to think about rattlesnakes. But fundamentally, the information that, um, that goes from the prefrontal cortex, which is like this. So, no, you really, that was a really stupid thing to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm using words, and I'm being intentional about it, and I'm pissed that you're doing that, and I just think it was dumb. Whenever you say that to another person, that part of your brain underneath the cortex, which is the limbic system, having no direct connection with the outside world, experiences the statement to the outside person as if it was sent to you, to the inside person. In other words, information that goes out goes down. So therefore, you get the same abuse that your negativity uh, voices on others. You get the same abuse. So that the reason to eliminate negativity is a radical form of self-care. Just want to make sure I'm tracking with you there. I receive the same abuse. I think I'm judging this person outside of myself, but it's registering in the brain as if I'm sending that message against myself? Yep. And we thought this uh, for a long time. I, I uh, interviewed couples about you know, how do you feel when you, you know, say that? Uh, how do you feel inside? Well, I feel terrible. Um, and we explored that. And so I, for a long time, I, you know, we knew that effect was going on, that what went out went down. And then the guys came along, uh, and uh, when was it? And um, I, I, I'm bad on dates, but it's been about a decade or so now that there was the discovery um, about mirror neurons. So that with the discovery of mirror neurons, it was this discovery that, <clears throat> that we have a capacity without uh, necessary exchange of words to experience what goes on in another person's mind 
and to influence what goes on in another person's mind, and that there's a mirror effect between uh, the two minds. Um, and that is a complicated thing and too long for this conversation, but that set of neurons established the neurophysiological basis for simultaneous effect. Uh-huh. Now, Harville, I'm curious. You've been married for many years. Have you been able to accomplish zero negativity in your marriage? Um, let me put it this way. It is an intention uh, which Helen and I are both committed to. So when we uh, blow up, or uh, when we blow it, we don't blow up anymore, but when, you, when we blow it, uh, we do immediate repair. So, so that one thing is so that it doesn't sound like we're perfect and we got all this down. But mainly we have surrendered, we surrendered negativity. Uh, it took us um, about nine months to retrain our brains that way, but uh, we did. And, uh, and, you know, there are times when, um, and, and when you do that, you begin developing a new neural net about your partner uh, because the old neural net of, you know, she's not an okay person is no longer filled with any energy. Uh, that she's an amazingly wonderful, good, kind person, and uh, and and whatever is going on right now it has to do with you know what's happening to her. Maybe she got a bad phone call, or her back hurts, or something like that. That new neural net that includes uh, perception, awareness, uh, empathy, compassion, uh, curiosity, and all that takes a while to build, but you can build that, and that becomes the new operating system. And since you have a new network, uh, which feels wonderful, you know, it's like falling in a briar patch. You just get it back up on the road real fast and get back over in the other place because that's where you want to live. And what might an interpersonal repair look like? How do you oh, do that? Uh, uh, you, you go to your partner, and there are two or three things you can do. One is to say, I'm sorry. Um, I slipped. And uh, you hold them, look them in the eye, make contact. Um, and that creates, um, uh, and look, look, we call it looking from the glare to the gaze. You look softly in the eye, say, I'm really sorry. I love you, and I never, never intend to hurt you. And, um, and I take responsibility for what I did, and, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm re, I'm recommit to this. Uh, and then you, you touch, you want to touch, uh, and, and, uh, and hug. And what that does is uh, stimulate uh, bonding chemicals. And you feel better in about, you know, two or three minutes instead of two or three weeks. Now, Harville, just a couple more questions. It, it seems, and, and tell me if I'm right or wrong here, that you have a bias that it's better to be in a committed, intimate relationship than it is, let's say, to either be single, to live your life as a single person, or to live your life in an unconventional, open marriage, you know, or some other sort of unconventional form that we might be able to come up with, who knows what. Is that true? Is that true or not? Well, um, I, I have, uh, let, me, let me answer it this way. Um, I think that couplehood is a reflection of the dyadic structure of nature, um, and that therefore couplehood is, exists. It's more than just a psychological or social, psychological experience or a social structure. It actually is built into nature itself. Um, and that there are all different kinds and forms of couplehood, but everything in nature seems to be dyadic and complementary. Um, 
And that what that means for singles is that it's important for them, if they're not, quote, in an intimate, committed partnership, to be in um, relationship. Uh, because we are relational creatures, uh, and started in the 70s, the the old model of autonomy, independent self-sufficiency that uh, came from um, Newton and Darwin and Freud uh, began to break down in the 70s when we discovered the uh, child as a social being at birth instead of merged with the mother. Um, and then a whole range of, of, of um, uh, even the basic psychotherapy, the psychoanalysis, developed a whole subset called relational psychoanalysis, the British object relations therapist. Winnicott? Winnicott. There's no such thing as a baby. Uh, but fundamentally, what he said was that relationship is fundamental. That is, that there's no such thing as a baby in isolation. There's always a mother-child relationship. And Sullivan in the 1950s said it doesn't matter what happens inside of people. What happens is, what matters is what happens between them, um, um, Buber, uh, with the I-Thou relationship, said all life is meeting. Uh, the whole idea of a singularity is, um, the, and the isolated self, you know, has taken, and it's, you know, it's been 25 or 30 years, strong conversations and directions in that. So, yes, I do have a bias toward uh, relationality as fundamental. There was another part of your question I want to address, too, um, about it was not just about single. unconventional relationships or open marriages, and yeah, I did want to uh, to address that. Here's what we found out about uh, ambivalence, and which is that um, that you really can't grow, or, or put it another way, the the degree and intensity of your growth in a relationship depends upon the degree of your commitment, and which is why when you finally tie the knot and say, I do, your unconscious mind then begins to do something to begin a program in the relationship that will heal uh, the childhood wounds. Uh, very, very dynamic things begin to happen after you tie the knot uh, that don't happen before that. And so as we work with that, we've come to this conclusion that um, ambivalence interferes with psychological growth. So... Uh, which means that many people who get a divorce have never actually fully committed to the relationship, like till death do us part. But when there is no ambivalence in a relationship, then there are energies apparently in the unconscious that are activated that move toward deep internal healing and repair that are not activated unless there is a full commitment. So an open marriage um, probably, maybe, maybe, Maybe there are some, but, but structurally it looks like an open relationship would be one of ambivalence. And so consequently, it might have all other kinds of values, and, I've no, and I have no evaluation of it. But at the functional level, it appears that commitment uh, is necessary for deep healing and growth, and ambivalence interferes with that process. Because we have a big uh, reality now in, in the Western world of the number of cohabiting couples. And the cohabitation is, by definition, an ambivalent relationship Most for most people. Uh, some may decide we're going to cohabit it as if we were married and we're committed till death do we part. But there's another uh, and larger strain is that cohabitation is, in some sense, a, a, a practice or an experiment. 
if we get it right without being married, then we might get married. And we've, what we found is that most people who move from cohabitation to marriage go through a very difficult period, and the divorce rate for cohabiting couples is much higher than the divorce rate of couples who don't live together before marriage. But it's that ambivalence that prevents the growth that could occur, and when you get married, then the unconscious says, okay, now, I'm, now we can get the work done, um, but it's so painful and so disheartening that you live together for five years in a great relationship, and now it's gone, gone, to, gone to pot. Um, so, so what we've been working with this for a long time, and that's what we've come up with, is the theory of ambivalence and it's, uh, it, the, how, it, how that limits psychological healing and growth. But it sounds like it's the commitment that's the key thing, not the form, per se. Whether you cohabitate right. or you don't, it's the quality of commitment and all the doors are sealed, we're, we're in. It, right. The qual- that's exactly right. It's the non-negotiability of the commitment I am, or, or the unconditionality of the commitment. I'm here. Uh, and, there, you know, there are – Helen likes to talk about the covenant marriage, which is uh, you picking up an Old Testament term in which the relationship between Yahweh and, the, and his people uh, at that time, the Israelites, was um, not breakable. It was non-negotiable. You could count on it. And I think that's a quality that in relationships, when it's uh, unconditional and non-negotiable, then uh, safety is created because then you're not wondering, is he going to be gone? Are we going to divorce? We're having such a horrible time. He's going to walk. No, if you're in a covenant relationship or one that's rooted in non-negotiable commitment, what you know is it's just a storm. And, and it means that we need to come together and talk about how do we move toward what I call a zero negativity, increase of um, curiosity and empathy, because we know that out of that then will come a real sense of connection. And when you feel sustainable connection, you then can feel very, very deep passion. And then you've got the relationship of your dreams. Mm-hmm. Now, Harville, I want to end by asking you to respond to a quote of yours that I read. And here's the quote. God shows up in relationships that are thriving. Yeah, I would stand by that. Uh, let me take a minute to, to, to build the infrastructure of that statement. We talk in, in, um, in Imago about, quote, the space between, uh, that the space between is what couples create to, um, to um, eliminate what we were talking about before as my world is the world, too bad about yours, uh, which can be called merger um, or symbiosis, in which there's a kind of emotional merger of you with me, that what we have to do is is to we have to um, differentiate. You have to become aware that you're collapsing your partner into your world, um, and and stop doing it. Uh, to put it bluntly, and that's called differentiation. When you differentiate, you create a space between the two, and that space then means two differentiated individuals are now capable of having a connection because it's when you differentiate, you get it that your partner is not you, that you actually live with another person. And now you can have a, now you can have a, connect, a connected relationship because you're differentiated. When you're merged, you can't really have a connected relationship because there's no sense of the other. 
when you get to the sense of the other, you can then have a connected relationship. And when you are in that uh, differentiated sp place with the space between, and you then uh, only allow into the space between um, kindness, care, curiosity, uh, empathy, compassion, you, you are basically creating love. And then I pick up on Martin Buber who said that God, God dwells in the space between. Uh, I pick up on him and say, when couples create love in the space between, God comes to live in that relationship. And certainly couples will thrive. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Harville Hendricks. He has created a six-session audio learning course with Sounds True called Finding and Keeping Love. It's an Imago-based approach and... Really, Harville, you are uh, such a master, so committed. You've done so much work in this field to train so many therapists and help so many people. Uh, I'm really grateful to you for holding the torch. It's really beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Tammy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. <laughs>